Welcome to Chime Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Trisha. And I'm Paddy. This week we join the Doctor, Ben, Polly and Jamie as they explore the lost city of Atlantis. We will be discussing each of the characters and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. To join in on the discussion, you can check us out at Time Teamp, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravellingteamp at teamproductions.com. Now though, over to Paddy for the story recap. Thank you very much. Episode 1. Jamie is getting his bearings around the control room, completely amazed at what he sees before him. Ben and Polly explain to him the less than perfect nature of travelling in the TARDIS. The Doctor tries to put him at ease by quoting some Highland poetry, only to realise that the poet in question hasn't been born yet in Jamie's time. The TARDIS begins its landing sequence and Ben takes Jamie with him to explore the outside area. Just as they leave, the Doctor cries out for them to wait. For him, that is, before he gives a mischievous chuckle. Once outside, they see that they are on some sort of island, with Polly and Jamie guessing that they have landed somewhere off mainland Britain. The Doctor, however, says that the soil and rocks are volcanic and points out that what appears to be an extinct volcano behind them. The three young travellers go exploring whilst the Doctor does calculations to determine their exact location. Polly tells the boys that she thinks she has seen something in the rocks ahead, but they think she is just imagining it. They climb on ahead as Polly struggles to keep up. After they reach a ledge, Polly stops to rest and Ben says that they will come back soon. Once she is by herself, Polly starts to explore the entrances to some nearby caves. She finds a bracelet on the ground and goes further into the cave to see what else she can see. However, she is soon surrounded by robed figures, causing her to scream in fright. Ben and Jamie hear her screams and rush back to help her. Ben takes a torch out of his pocket and together they venture into the cave to find Polly. Meanwhile, the doctor has finished his calculations and goes to find his young friends. Inside the caves, Ben and Jamie search for Polly but are also attacked by the robed figures and placed into a room with Polly. They are shortly joined by the Doctor and suddenly the room starts to descend into the cave. As they descend further down they succumb to the effects of compression and pass out. Later they wake in a compression chamber and the Doctor theorises that they have encountered an ancient sect of troglodytes but can't be certain as he is unsure of the date. Polly casually says that they must have landed somewhere in the 1970s and when asked for proof she shows the bracelet which is a souvenir from the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico. Before they can discuss any more, a person enters the room and Ben elects Polly as a spokesperson due to her being multilingual. After trying French, German, Spanish and Jamie attempting to converse in Gaelic, the stranger brandishes the spear and motions them out of the room. They are then forced down a corridor to a large dining room where a serving guard is setting out food. The guard hits her when she doesn't immediately respond to them, but the doctor intervenes to prevent him from doing so again and she then leaves offering him a grateful smile. He starts to help himself to some food and invites the others to join him. Suddenly, they hear a strange sound and see a procession of strangely dressed people enter the room. One of them, who appears to be a priest of some sort, informs them that their arrival was prophesied and that they are to be sacrificed for the upcoming festival. As they are being led away, the doctor calls out that he has an important information but he will not give it under threat. The priest then assures him that the others won't be harmed for the time being but still has them taken away. The doctor tells the priest that he has information about Professor Zaroff, who he has deduced is in the strange underground structure based on the food that was on the dining table. He then writes a note for the priest to give to Zaroff, but he refuses. The serving girl, whom the priest calls Ara, comes back to finish her task, and the doctor secretly hands her the note and asks her to deliver it for him. In a temple, a ceremony is taking place, and the young trio were ushered into by the priest's guards. Jamie suggests that they should try and make a run for it, but Ben says that they should wait for the doctor to join them. They are taken and bound with ropes and placed on slabs that overhang a shark-infested pool at the centre of the temple. Ben tries to reassure the others that so long as the Doctor is free, then there is hope of a rescue, but this is no longer the case as he is being led in tied to the slab beside them. 
The sacrifice process begins as the slabs are slowly tilted towards the water. Ara arrives outside Zaros' quarters, but is the night entry, so she instead asks for his associate, Daemon. She hands him a note and informs him that a vital secret will die with the doctor. He rushes to give the note to Zaroff, who races to the temple and orders the ceremony to be stopped. He says that the ceremony can go ahead, but only after he has first spoken to the doctor. The doctor refuses to give up the information unless the others are freed as well. Zaroff reluctantly agrees, but sends them to the labour controller, who will know what to do with them. The doctor then commends Zaroff on having faked his death at the outset of the Cold War, but then admits that he has no secret information to give Zaroff, explaining that it was a ruse to impress him, who he knows appreciates intelligence. Zaroff commends him on his guile and sense of humour and brings him back to his lab. At Damon's office, he assigns Jamie and Ben to be taken away to work in the mines while keeping Polly with him. He brings her to a nearby window where she observes divers tending to the plankton farms outside. He tells Polly that they surgically graft plastic gills to the farmers so that they can work outside and he says that she too will become one, but she resists. In Zaroff's office, after questioning their, their exact location, the doctor realises that they are in the mythical sunken city of Atlantis. Zaroff says that he has been allowed to stay only for the fact that he has promised to raise Atlantis from the sea. He is then summoned by a guard, and while he is gone, Ara arrives and informs the doctor what is about to happen to Polly. He tells her to go back to Damon's office and try anything she can to rescue her, but he is called by Zaroff before he can do any more. In Damon's office, Polly struggles with the surgical team as Damon attempts to sedate her. Episode 2 Zaroff is showing the doctor around his lab and explaining how Atlantis managed to sustain life after it sank. The doctor is nosing around at the different workstations and surreptitiously sneaks something off one of them and then casually makes his way towards an electronics bank, complimenting Zaroff on his work. He starts to fiddle with some of the dials, which are actually the power regulators for the surgical lab. The lights start to dim in the room, preventing Damon from seeing what he is doing. He storms off to Zaroff's lab and confronts him about it and accuses him of siphoning power away from the rest of the city for his own projects. Zaroff shows him that all the power functions are reading as normal across the rest of the city, and therefore the issue is in the surgical lab itself. As the two men bicker, the doctor investigates the master power regulator and accidentally breaks the fuse, and it just so happens to be the main feed to the surgical lab. In the lab, the lights go out completely, and the chief orderly instructs the others to find torches while he, he goes to check the fuses. He instructs the recently arrived Ara to watch over Polly, and once they are alone, she frees her and the two escape. Ara takes her to the temple and instructs her to hide in the giant statue of an Atlantean god. Back in Zaroff's lab, Damon sees through the ruse and rushes back to the lab while Zaroff keeps the doctor with him to keep an eye on him. In an attempt to distract him again, the doctor asks Zaroff to explain his plan of raising Atlantis back to the surface. Zaroff explains that he cannot raise it, so he instead plans to lower the ocean level to make Atlantis accessible by land again. The doctor says that this would be impossible, as the thickness of the Earth's crust would prevent him from draining enough of the ocean away. Zaroff says that he has been working on the solution to that problem for the last several years, but the doctor points out that no matter what he tries, the superheated steam caused by the ocean water approaching the Earth's core would cause it to crack and rip the world apart. Zaroff informs him that that is his goal, to achieve the power to destroy the Earth as his final testament. Damon returns and announces that Polly has escaped and the doctor goads him about it and his rivalry with Zaroff. As Damon is saying that they can always acquire more labour, the doctor mixes a chemical compound that creates a choking gas that allows him to escape. In the mines, Ben and Jamie are brought to the site foreman, who takes them to their workstation. On the way, they encounter two prisoners who are huddled in a corner. The foreman thinks that they are hiding something and calls the guard to search them. Before the guard arrives though, Jamie takes the object from them to hide it, and once they are cleared to go back to work, the two men explain that it is a compass and they plan on using it to escape. 
They introduce themselves as Jacko and Sean, who is the more welcoming of the two. During their lunch break, Sean explains that they intend to slip into an unused mineshaft and escape back to the surface. Ben and Jamie agree to join them, but before they can mention anything about the others, an alarm sounds. The foreman arrives and begins to assign people to a specialised work party. The foreman uses this opportunity to make their escape, with Ben and Jamie distracting the foreman enough for Sean and Jack to escape before they follow suit. The doctor is hiding from the search parties when he encounters Ara. She tells him that Polly is safe and he asks her to take him to the chief of state. They hide when they hear Damon approach, accompanied by the priest from earlier, whose name is Ramo. Ramo expresses his distrust of Zaroff and the doctor decides to use it to his advantage. He gets Ara to get Damon away, telling him that she saw Polly down in the marketplace. After they are gone, the doctor approaches Ramo, who agrees to speak with him in private. He takes him to the temple and once there, the doctor gives a demonstration using a fire and a closed water jug to show what would happen if Zaroff was allowed to carry out his plan. Ramo, horrified by this, offers to bring the doctor to speak with the Atlantean leader, Thaus. He gives the doctor a set of priest's robes as a disguise and they leave to meet with Thaus. They then try to explain to him that Zaroff is insane and will only bring about Atlantis's destruction. Thaus is reluctant to believe them and orders them to leave so he can think about what they have told him. Meanwhile, in the escape shaft, the group splits up to find the correct way out and Jamie slips down into a crevice whilst he is waiting for Jacko to return with the others. Ben and Jacko return, with Sean having carried on down another tunnel to look for another way out, and together they pull Jamie back up onto the ledge. Once they are all reunited, they see a secret door in the wall that leads into the temple, and they are reunited with Polly, who had earlier switched hiding places in the temple and as a result missed the doctor. Ara arrives shortly with food for the escapees, but they are forced back into a se- the secret doorway when they hear a procession approaching. Ara remains behind, saying that she will be missed otherwise. Back in Thaus's chamber, he summons the Doctor and Ramo back and gives them his answer, by informing and entering Zaroff that he is free to do with him whatever he wants. Episode 3 Zaroff says that he regrets interfering and saving the Doctor and decrees that he and the others will be sent back to the temple to be sacrificed by the High Priest Lolum. He also says that Ramo is to be sacrificed, but the Doctor tries to stand up for him, saying that he led him astray. However, Ramo says that he helped the Doctor willingly and that he never trusted Zaroff. Zaroff then gloats as they are led away and tries to reassure a now sceptical Thaus that his plan to raise Atlantis will work as promised. In the temple, Lollum is preparing the Doctor and Ramo for sacrifice, with the Doctor apologising to the priest. Just before the executioner prepares to swing his blade, a voice calls out from the giant statue, bringing a halt to the ceremony. The voice calls out for everyone to bow their heads so that they may not see their god come and accept the sacrifice. The Doctor recognises the voice and he looks up to see Ben at the secret door signalling for him to come quickly. Together, the Doctor and Ramo move quickly and join the others in the secret tunnel, leaving the other Atlanteans to marvel at what their god has done when they see that the sacrifice victims have gone. Back in Taos's office, Zaroff has managed to bring the leader around again and promises him that in two days' time his plan will come to fruition. Suddenly, Lollum enters and tells him what has just occurred. Zaroff is sceptical of his claims and offends the deeply superstitious Atlanteans by ordering a search of the city for the two fugitives. Nevertheless, Thaus instructs Lollum to carry out the search, lest Zaroff renege on his promise to raise Atlantis. Meanwhile, in the secret tunnel, the Doctor recounts Zaroff's plan to them and says that he needs to be stopped immediately. He comes up with a plan to get the fish people to strike and stop gathering food for the city. Ramo explains that the harvested food spoils within a few hours, and so therefore the city has no reserves and is completely dependent on the fish people. The Doctor sends Sean and Jacko to convince the fish people to strike, whilst the rest of them will capture Zaroff. In the marketplace, Aaron and Polly, who is disguised as a servant, meet up with the doctor, who is also disguised as a begging sailor. Suddenly, a group of guards appears, forcing the girls to hide, whilst a recently arrived Ben and Jamie, now disguised as guards, question the doctor. 
The guards soon leave and Zaraf arrives and so the doctor puts his plan to action. He casts off his disguise and leads Zaraf away from the marketplace, who takes Ben and Jamie with him to capture the doctor. They all arrive back at the temple and they successfully capture Zaraf. In the caves of the fish people, Sean whips them into a frenzy by making them realise that they are little more than slaves and incites them to starve Atlantis. He and Jacko then make their way back to the temple. Back in the temple, Polly has joined the group and they listen as Zaroff says that his plan is already in progress and that there's nothing that they can do to stop it. The doctor doubts this as he says Zaroff is too egotistical to have the plan proceed without him. Zaroff flies into a rage and then falls into a fit. The doctor takes Ben and Jamie with him to investigate Zaroff's lab and verify his claims, whilst Polly and Ramo stay behind to guard the prisoner. However, a procession enters the temple forcing the men to hide nearby. After the trio are gone, Zaroff begs a sceptical and distrusting Ramo to help him pray to the gods of Atlantis for forgiveness for all that he has done. Polly asks Ramo to help him as he doesn't look well, but it is only a ruse as Zaroff stabs Ramo despite Polly's interference and then takes her away with him. Meanwhile, the procession finally leaves and the doctor decides to send Jamie to guard Zaroff instead as they would need Ramo as a guide. However, a mortally wounded Ramo appears at the secret entrance. Jamie says that Polly is gone and so the doctor sends him after her, telling him to be careful of the desperate Zaroff, whilst him and Bren press onto the lab. Jamie catches up with Polly and Zaroff and he engages the mad scientist in a fight. Zaroff eventually gains the upper hand as he is armed, but he flees when Sean and Jacko arrive. Polly says that they need to get to the lab, but first they need to fight Ara so that she can lead them into it. Back in Thaus's office, Damon is informing the leader of the Fish People's Revolt. Left with no other choice, Thaus sends Damon to arrange a meeting with their elders. After he leaves, Azarf arrives with his personal guards and once he is told of the situation, says that his guards will deal with it and kill anyone that resists. Thaus refuses to allow him to do so as he now realises that the doctor was right about Zaroff's deranged state of mind. He orders him to be taken away into custody, but Zaroff as his own guards kill Thaus's men whilst he shoots Thaus and then triumphantly states that nothing can stop him. Episode 4 Zaroff leaves and a short while later the Doctor and Ben come across the scene and discover that Thaus is still alive. The Doctor says that they must get him back to safety before they can try to stop Zaroff. They then take him back to the temple and encounter an anxious Ara, Sean and Jacko. Ara says that Polly and Jamie have gone off towards Zaroff's office. The Doctor tells him that his plan to stop Zaroff is to flood the lower sections of the city. He tells Sean and Jacko to warn the people and to get them to the upper levels whilst he and Ben go to overload the power generator that services the seawalls. Once the walls come down, the laboratory will be flooded as well. In the lab, Zaroff is getting reports from the section chiefs when one of them calls Shu to say that the workers have left one of the power stations in order to look for food as the fish people strike has gone into full effect. Zaroff orders the guard to go and get the people back to work. The doctor and Ben arrive at the generator room but find it guarded. Ben pretends to be a guard who is bringing the doctor into custody. Together they manage to trick the guards into giving them the password and they use it to access the generator room. Ben knocks out the technician and the doctor successfully manages to sabotage the generator. They then leave and make their way to Zaro's office. Meanwhile, Polly and Jamie are struggling with the directions Ara gave them as all the tunnels look the same. However, they can hear the humming vibrations which they assume to be coming from the lab and they follow the sound. However, the humming is actually from the sea walls being overloaded and the duo see the walls beginning to glow. They then try to make their way to higher ground when the walls give way and the water starts to pour through. Unfortunately, they reach a dead end and they begin to look around for another way out. Jamie sees the flames of his torch flicker and spots an opening in the wall and he leads on whilst Polly follows. In the temple, water starts to pour through and Sean suggests that they leave. Damon arrives and joins them as they help Thaus, who is lamenting at the fate of the city because of his trust in Zaroff. The temple collapses after they leave. 
In the laboratory, Zarf is pushing the plan ahead due to the flooding of the city, but the doctor arrives and explains Zarf's plan to the technicians and the guards, who flee to safety. Zarf then locks himself into a section of the lab which has the activation switch for his plan, seeing that he can't be stopped now. Ben says that the water is getting closer and flees the scene. The doctor then turns off the lights in the lab, causing Zarf to laugh as it is only a temporary delay. He holds the doctor at gunpoint as he goes to turn the lights back on, but Ben returns and reseals the section of the lab with the activation switch, preventing Zarf from reaching it. Together, Ben and the doctor flee as Zarf screams and shoots at them. The doctor says he wants to go back as he cannot leave Zarf to die. Ben says they need to escape themselves, but the argument is settled when a rock fall seals off the lab. Inside, Zara futilely tries to reach the switch as the water rises, eventually sinking beneath the waterline. Meanwhile, Polly and Jamie are making their way through the side tunnel. It is a tough climb and Polly says that she can't go any further, but Jamie helps her along, helping her to get up a particularly difficult ledge. They keep going until they eventually reach the surface. They stop to catch their breath and their thoughts turn to the doctor and Ben, with Jamie saying that it is unlikely that they survived. In the city, the sentiment is echoed by Ara as she listens to Thaos and Daemon discuss how they will rebuild Atlantis, but as a less superstitious and more humane society. The Doctor and Ben continue to make their way towards the surface when Ben asks whether he thinks Polly survived or not. The Doctor just gives him a sad look as they continue to climb. However, the quartet are soon happily reunited when they emerge from a cave onto the shore behind Polly and Jamie. They make their way into the TARDIS, which dematerializes just as Sean and Jacko emerge from their own tunnel. In the TARDIS, Jamie comments that he is now fully on board with travelling with the Doctor and the others, but asks if it is true that he can't fully pilot the ship. Ben and Polly give the Doctor a gentle mocking over this fact, causing him to attempt to save face by stating that he will take them to Mars. He flips the switch on the console, and suddenly the TARDIS starts to spin out of control. End of the story. So now, guys, as always, we are going to go over to Trivia's, uh, Trivia's, Trisha's Trivia Spot. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Yeah. Only because, as I've said to you before many times, I've written my notes and spelt my own name wrong. So, yeah. my name, My name is Trivia, it's not Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So, the underwater menace. The air date for this story was the 14th of January to the 4th of February, 1967. The writer for this story is Jeffrey Orme. This is the only Doctor Who writing credit for Jeffrey, though he did submit a story idea called The Evil Eye, but that was rejected. Having been born in 1904, Jeffrey was actually the oldest writer for Doctor Who. Because imagine he was born in 1904, the story didn't come out in 1967. He was 62, 63 when he wrote this? Yeah, 62, 63. Sadly, Jeffrey passed away in 1978. The director for the story is Julia Smith. This is the second and final Doctor Who story for Julia. We may get into a little bit later on as to why this may have been her final story. We previously discussed Julia in The Smugglers, which actually gets a bit of a mention in this story when Polly's trying to say where they are. And yeah. Ben's like, oh, the last time it was Cornwall. And she's like, yeah, well, I was right. Maybe that's why she left. I only deal with the seaside and it has to be Cornwall. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Julia passed away in 1997. Now, this is another story which has missing episodes. However, we do have a couple of intact episodes. So at this moment in time, only episodes two and three exist in the BBC archives. However, the BBC has reconstructed the remaining two episodes, so episodes one and episodes four, using stills and the audio. And now all four episodes are available on a standalone DVD 
so you can watch it from beginning to end and actually when i first watched this story about nine years ago only episode three survived Mm. episode two they found a couple of years later i think yeah and i think you know one of the things that we have kind of gotten used to with loose canon reconstructions of this of stories so where they take stills and audio is usually they give little descriptor bars as to what's happening if you watch the dvd of the underwater menace there's no descriptor bars it's just a fair few number of stills in fairness to them they've plenty of stills so you can kind of follow what's going on fairly easily but it's just the audio then there's no descriptor Mm. bars that we're used to seeing with loose cannon stuff the story had the working titles of (laughs) the fish people (laughs) under the sea so it would have been doctor who under the sea and atlanta i think the underwater menace is probably the better of those titles personally episode one of this story finishes a run of 12 missing episodes which started with bill hartnell's final episode in 10th planet Mm. as of recording this is the longest run of missing episodes that we have yeah and as sort of paddy and i were discussing um offline during the week you know in this story which for Pat Troughton is story number three. Yes. We finally get to see him actually acting. And it's amazing because, yeah, it's like episode two when he starts to fiddle with the machine. He snaps off like one piece of it and he just puts his fingers to his lips in a sort of a, oh dear, what did I do type thing. (laughs) And I was like, if that's the first major sequence of him surviving, I'm happy that they found it. Yeah, same here. Um, In the early draft of the story... We were given Zarv's motivations for why he wanted to blow up the planet that he lives on. Um, and apparently it stemmed from his wife and children dying in a car crash. And it sort of unhinged him a bit. And so he wanted revenge on the entire planet. Like that motivation is so much better than just because I can. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later when we're talking about characters. But it's nice to know that there was a plan to give him a motivation. Yeah. We mentioned last week that the director of the Highlanders... Uh, Hugh David was originally offered the chance to direct this story but he turned it down because he felt it was too expensive and too outrageous for the budget of the show Mm. we'll maybe see in our overall if we agree with him now according to documentaries and audio commentaries and interviews and stuff this was not a fun episode to make and nobody involved was particularly happy with it after. So Annika Wills has said in the DVD commentary that the main cast did not get along with Julia Smith at all. And Patrick Troughton particularly did not get on with her. And I have a quote here from Annika saying, We would mess around and she would get more and more like a school teacher and we got naughtier and naughtier. Pat would call her a miserable old bitch. But that's Jesus. what... But that's what we were like. We had power. We were the main actors. Otherwise, most of the directors we got on really well with, only Julia had a bad time with us. We made her life a misery. There's so much to unpack in that that sequence. Some of it seems that perhaps the director was maybe a little bit overbearing. Some of it, I'll be honest, Annika, if you ever hear this, it sounds a little bit like the cast being a bit up their own ass. Yeah. 
but that's the way it was. In terms of other people's reactions, Michael Craze said that the story was basically a dodo. It was badly conceived. It was tatty scripts and costumes and everything. It ended up being a pantomime. And that Julia Smith was so emotionally charged that she'd burst into tears at anything. Jesus. Bearing in mind, Julia Child is only the second female director we've ever had in Doctor Who. Mm. Some other comments. Um, Pat Troughton, very unhappy with the production, described the show as having ridiculous costumes and that he didn't like the makeup of the fish people. I agree with you, Pat. Mm-hmm. Inns Lloyd <laughs> geez, described it that it looked like a 50s American B movie. And just for kind of reference the makeup for the fish people imagine like a bedazzled tuscan raider but not as good yeah like like you know it, it it's not as cool as it sounds but that's what that's what it essentially is it's uh, your you, mom you know, making you up as a bedazzled tuscan raider but that way yeah lastly like i sort of mentioned annika already in terms of her comments in relation to julia smith but she was very unhappy that polly was basically just a damsel in distress mm. and apparently uh, I say apparently, I'll explain why in a second. There was an infamous scene when the fourth episode was broadcast where Polly has a little bit of a mental breakdown and Jamie slaps her to bring her out of it. And no one was happy with that. They didn't think it was acceptable. They didn't think it was true to Jamie's character. The reason why I say apparently is that is not present in the version me and Paddy watched. Because yeah. when they were doing the audio recreation of the story and obviously when they made the dvd everyone agreed that didn't make sense for jamie and so they took it out so if you watch it now that is not in the story it was deemed to be a mistake by everybody and so they removed it yeah because like like as like we go on it that's if that's the case that's a very on jamie like thing to do yeah and it was interesting reading that comment online. So me and Paddy had to do a little bit of deep dive into this because we both discussed before we started recording that when we were watching it, we were like, what are they talking about? Yeah. Um, we didn't see any evidence of it when we were watching it. And so we had a bit of a nose around online and apparently it was originally in the episode and it was decided later on it wasn't true to his character. So when they had the opportunity to obviously you know redo it and re-release it they decided do you know what take that bit out yeah because do you want to kind of remind me of a small bit back do you remember way 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 back at the start when we reviewed the initial pilot Mm. for the show and just how everything was just so like susan and the doctor was just so different yeah they were very other than what we had known so like like looking back we would view it as uncharacteristic at the time though these characters were newly formed whereas yeah. with Jamie we've had a story with him that that aspect of him never came across I will say one thing I won't say so much in defence because slapping yeah. someone to make them out of mental breakdown is never an appropriate action but hmm. there was a couple of other background things with this story it was kind of thrown together because it had originally kind of been sidelined they weren't going to bother doing hmm. it and then they ran out of stories they needed something to fill the gap so they brought it back in and as you may have remembered from last week, Jamie wasn't meant to stay. Mm. So they had to try and shoehorn him in to this story. Now, I wonder if in the original story, maybe Jacko or Sean was meant to be with Polly. 
Um, And so they had to replace that character with Jamie. And whoever was writing that character, whoever was writing the script, didn't know Jamie as a character very well. They hadn't really decided what his character was going to be like. And so they put this in, Hmm. not realizing that was very counter to who Jamie would be as a person. Yeah. Point being, if you watch the DVD now, you will probably never even know that was a thing unless you listen to audio commentaries and stuff. Circling on to our cast. So mm-hmm. we have a fair few people to talk through today. It's interesting. So this is a story that has a lot of sort of side players, more so than we yeah. maybe usually have. So as Jacko, we have Paul Anil. So this is Paul's only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include The Bill, King of the Ghetto, and The Avengers. Paul passed away back in 2014. As Sean, we have PG Stevens. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit. His other acting credits include The Shadow of the Glen, Zed Cars, <laughs> The Saint, Oh, the Lovely War, and The Bill. He also passed away in 2014. Ara is played by Catherine Ho. Once again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Catherine. Her other credits include Zed Cars, Dixon of Doc Green, Merry Go Round, and The Newcomers. Is it Ho or How? H-O-W-E? I, was, I would have always pronounced that How. I could be wrong. Catherine, feel free to reach out to us and tell us how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. This you know this is the most awkward part for me because I never know how to pronounce yeah. half these people's names. Yeah. But this is coming from the guy who can't pronounce his own first name, so there we go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ramo is played by Tom Watson. Mm-hmm. Again, only Doctor Who acting credit for Tom. His other credits include Witchwood, Coronation Street, Dr. Finley's Casebook, Dixon of Doc Green, Zed Cars, and Taggart. He passed away back in 2001. Zaroff is played by Joseph First, or perhaps this should be pronounced Yosef First. Mm-hmm. Not quite sure. Only Doctor Who acting credit for, I'm just going to say Joseph for the sake of this. His yeah. other credits include The Saint, The Champions, Doom Watch, Diamonds Are Forever, and 55 Days at Peking. Now this is going to bug me because I really enjoy 55 Days at Peking. So I'm going to get my mind as to figure out who he is. <laughs> I think I might know, but I'm going to double check. <laughs> Joseph passed away in 2005. Damon is played by Colin Jevons. Jevons, why do people have such hard names? J-E-A-V-O-N-S. I'm going to go with Jevons. Only Doctor Who acting credit for Colin. However, he was also in the pilot episode of the Doctor Who spin-off K-9 and Company. Really? Which I'm sure you and I will discuss at some point when we get there chronologically. His other acting credits include Bleak House, the 1959 version, not the version with Gillian Anderson, Emergency War 10, Adam Adamant Lives, the Avengers and Zed Cars, Jack and Ori, and Only Fools and Horses. Lastly, as Faust, we have Noel Johnson. So this is the first of two acting appearances in Doctor Who for Noel. We'll see him again in Invasion of the Dinosaurs. His other acting credits include An Age of Kings, A for Andromeda, The Andromeda Breakthrough, Eris of Garth, Emergency War 10, Zed Cars, Inspector Morse and a touch of frost. Noel passed away back in 1999. And 
and I have managed to find who he plays in 55 Days of Peking. He is a character by the name of Captain Hanselman, who is from the Austrian uh, Empire Delegate in China. Cool. I haven't seen 55 Days of Peking, so I have no idea who you're referring to. Uh, it, but I'm sure it, our yeah, listeners no, will appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's just like, again, like one of those movies I used to enjoy watching as, uh, as a kid. Um, and it's actually something that... It's a, it's a period of time that I would really be curious to see the Doctor um, visit at some point. It deals with um, the, the Chinese rebelling against the colonial powers uh, taking over China. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And that is it for this week's Trivia Corner. Thank you very much, as always, Trish, for the trivia notes. You're very my, my leaping and latching on to one particular person <laughs> that I know in one of the most obscure movies, possibly. That's uh, weird because I was actually only watching clips from that movie like yesterday. Of course you were. Of course you were. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Like, it's a really, really good movie. Um, but yes, so moving aside or moving on, we now come to the meat and bones of time traveling team which is the character discussion so as always we have the doctor the companions and the story-based companions uh the villains and that is pretty much it so we'll start off with the man himself and trish do you want to go first or will i go first uh i'll go first sure cool um yay (laughs) we finally get to actually see (laughs) patrick troughton (laughs) The cosmic hobo in action. Yeah, like obviously this is now our third story with Doc Pat and audibly his performances have been great up to now. But it's good to actually be able to see him in character. Like you said, he's got great facial expressions, which is really, really good to see. So I'm glad that we, at least for the moment, we've reached a point where we can actually watch him properly. I love the fact that he seems to be very much a fly by the seat of his pants type of doctor it's getting out of this situation and then i'll deal with the next situation when i get into it so like oh i need to speak to professor zaroff it's really important i speak to professor zaroff what do you say to professor zaroff i have absolutely no clue i'll I'll, I'll figure a way out of that in a second oh we need to get them to strike what are we going to do once they strike i don't know i don't know (laughs) i'll figure that out uh, to your point there, like I thought at the very start of this, it's a case of Deus ex, Deus ex Doctor. It's just like a case of I know the person. As he, again, it's like that start of uh, the episode of Star Trek: Next Generation where Data solves the Sherlock Holmes crime within the first two minutes of the holodeck recreation. Yeah, so the difference here is obviously he's locked onto one nugget of information he has in his brain. Yeah, he has no idea what to do with it. He's <laughs> just like. There was a guy who could create food from sea, like from the sea. I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that. I'm gonna go with that. He was a person. He existed. The two things that really sort of stand out for me, um, on top of the sort of fly by the seat of your pants thing with Doc Pat, is we see a continuation in this story of his love of dress up. So he dresses mm-hmm. up as a priest. Love of the outfit all together. I love that again I love that we get to see this because you see him sort of like put on the cloak and sort of just like snuggle up into it and like this is awesome I, I think it's now part of Patrick Troughton's uh, contract <laughs> it's just like you know I get I get to dress whatever way I deem fit work it into the story 
And then his second dress up was as a pirate, but like it's sort of like in nineteen sixties pirate. So like he's got a bandana and sunglasses on. And it's, it, it's, like, it's 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 weird. Like it's like he's almost like are you like a fortune teller? Are you a beggar? Are you one of the guys from like the pirate radio ships? You know, from the boat that rocked. It's it's, it's almost like the boat that rocked was such a fantastic film. I completely forgot yeah. about that film until you just mentioned it. <laughs> Although I can imagine like that sequence where it's like you know like pub. Club, pub, that will be once lockdown lifts throughout the world. That will be <laughs> essentially the montage of 2021. Um, but yeah, weird tangent. Fantastic film. Haven't watched it. Yeah. Highly recommend. Um, but it's either someone from that or like one of the greasers from Greece. Like if they got stranded on an island and yeah. like they're trying to be a pirate. <laughs> Just to protect their hair. Yeah. The other thing though is that like at the very end, he wants to go back and save Zaroff, which is the quintessential Doctor thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned last week I had a few concerns over the fact that he seemed rather content to willy-nilly go around threatening people and, although it was humorous, bashing people's heads on tables. Mm. It's nice to see this sort of compassion underneath. Yeah. That he... You know, well, obviously he wanted to stop Zaroff from doing what he was going to do. The idea of leaving the man to drown didn't sit well with him. So for me, I thought that was great. But like, is is it this thing though for like, depending on the depending on the the field that the person is in. So last week we had Gray, who was essentially a slave trader, mm. and the doctor has had multiple encounters with slave traders. And I think, as per, you know, history tells us, slave traders, while at the time may have been a very viable, you know, lucrative career, nowadays they're looked upon with repulsion. Whereas, I, and it's going to come into a play of later stories where it's like, you know, the mind of the person, his ideology is wrong, but if the mind can be saved, could the person be turned? So sometimes I think there's a small bit of that in the sense of he's a slaver, he's a slaver, that's just pretty much, I'm going to let him twist in the wind whereas this person if he can be see if he's if he can see the right if he can see where he's going wrong maybe we can use his mind for the betterment of society I think for me the difference between Grey and Zaroff is he wasn't leaving Grey to twist in the wind not at all Um, Grey was arrested Mm. simple as Grey was facing justice Um, now would Grey have still faced justice if he hadn't run away and then cropped up on them later? Maybe we don't know what the plan would have been for that because that's not what happened in the episode. But Grey yeah. was facing justice. The Doctor had no sway in that whatsoever. In in many ways, it was none of his business. Mm. Do you know, he was facing justice at the hands of the law. The difference with Zaroff, though, is that Zaroff didn't face justice. Yeah, He was just left to die. And personally, I think that's the difference. I think... While the Doctor didn't agree with anything Zaroff did, A, yes, I think he agrees that he's a brilliant mind. And there might be a certain level of, if we could help him, could he better society? Mm. But I think, personally, I think part of it is also, if he is going to die, it should be after he's been tried for his actions, not because he got stuck underwater and drowned. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, can, I can see that. I can see that. Um, do you have any other thoughts about... No, I said for for me it was it was nice to get to see him. It was nice to get these different parts of his personality 
explored in in a way that we can tell that it's Pat and not just the way the animators did him. If that makes yeah, sense. Ex- exactly. And like that's I th- that's one highlight of the story. Whatever else about the story, the highlight is finally actually getting to see him be him. And I've said it before that Patrick Trone is a fantastic actor. And not only is he a fantastic actor, he's a fantastic actor that's in full control of his um physiognomy, as another doctor will later coin it. Like he's very like Rowan Atkinson, in a sense he has complete control over his face and mm. everything that it can it can uh, come with it. And like his little oh dear did I do that versus his like you know kind of like there's a point there where like you know where he's talking to Zarif about his clearly insane plan and he's just like like but ah if you do that this is what's going to happen it's like he's disguising his like you know, oh shit this guy is insane thing with like this happy cheery persona and I think if you're a fan of Patrick Troughton having to wait at the time it was 13 episodes you know or waiting for the 14th episode whereas now you know that extra episode has been found you finally get to see the man properly in action and it's great it's great to see it the other thing like so we talked about like i said the doctor you know dr x machina or do a sex doctor <laughs> whichever way you want to <laughs> put it uh, at the start and i agree with you like on a lot of stuff like you know his uh, love of costumes and you know See, as I said, secret agent doctor. One thing that I'd like to add is at the very end, did you get like shades of Hartnell with the, like indignation over like, you know, what do you mean I can't pilot the TARDIS? How dare you? A little bit. He doesn't get as indignant about it, but you could tell when it starts going wrong. He's like, this is all your yeah. fucking fault. If you just left the ship do what it wants to do, we wouldn't be in this mess. I like the fact that all that's again. Um, we talked about like when he's uh, back in power with the Daleks that he separated himself enough from the William Hartnell version of the Doctor but kept some undercurrents that it's like okay it's the same person it's just you know uh, although it's like that thing like, you know, like this is a great room it's only had seven new handles and five new heads you know, so <laughs> uh, is it essentially the same thing but no like, there's enough of an undercurrent that a lot of the characteristics are still there so like we saw it last week when you know he was the German doctor and you know he was bonking Perkins head off the table and but you could see Hartnell doing stuff like that as well you know like tricking those gullible characters I mean, we'll, we'll use the word gullible and here kind of getting indignant over the fact that you know his capabilities are being called into question yeah I think I think the doctor will always have that i mean thinking ahead a little bit to future doctors that i've seen even though he does on several occasions come out and admit that he doesn't control where the tardis goes or when um he likes to project this 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 guise that it's by choice hmm. that he chooses to let the tardis do whatever it wants <laughs> <laughs> and like right up until now like even with Jody, I think there is a certain level of indignation if there's a sort of a comment made about the ability to pilot the TARDIS at all, do you know? Yeah. Like right up until the thirteenth uh doctor, this is still something that sort of sticks a little bit. And like I yeah. remember like you and I did a, an RPG a number of years ago and we sort of hit on the point that like either the doctor fell asleep in TARDIS piloting classes or he just bunked mm. them off completely yeah. and just didn't go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh. So we move on to the companions. Indeed. So with the companions, we obviously have our, our now three sort of team TARDIS companions of Ben, Polly and Jamie. And then we've got a couple of story-based companions. If I could make a suggestion, so usually we do Ben and Polly together and then we do everyone else. Mm. Um, I suppose we start with Polly first this time around because Polly kind of has her own story as such. Like she's on her own for a lot of it and then Ben and Jamie mm. are kind of grouped together. So maybe we do Polly first and then do Ben and Jamie. No, I, th- I, think, that's a, I think that's a good one. All right. Um, will I lead this one off? Yeah. Cool. So I think that we have a clear case of a tale of two Pollys in this one. Mm. Because she, as like Annika will assert herself, herself, that it's, um, you know, she's very damsel in distress in this thing. But it's counterbalanced by her ingenuity and like her capabilities. Like at the very start, like it's like... You get it at the start where it's like, oh, this is too tough to climb. I can't make it. But then she's like searching the cave. And it's like, I wonder where we are. Oh, perhaps it's troglodytes. Perhaps we're wherever. And she goes, or we could be in the 70s. You know, <laughs> this thing that I found here. That, time. But like, you know, when she escapes uh, or when Ara helps her escape from the, the surgery table and she helps free the guys by pretending to be like this big giant headed god. Mm-hmm. I, that that's look as that's ingen, that's ingenious. I think that's fantastic. Mm. Uh, great stuff by Polly, you know. So it's 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 so bizarre because like she does fall in at points into the I've lost the will to live brigade, but then she's the same old Polly in the sense of like you know showing how capable she like you know is by you know, the multiple languages, mm. which is great. Now obviously as we go down the line that becomes a moot point. <laughs> but at the time when that wasn't established that's a fantastic skill set for any companion to have and again it shows to the whole thing of don't judge Polly just by the way she looks and acts mm. like I I have such a love-hate relationship with you know this story because of it does give us those shining moments but then it just you know shits on them so hard by having her be this almost pathetic helpless character yeah like Okay, the good things about Polly in the story. Yes, I like how she's constantly aware of her surroundings. Mm. Do you know? That bit where she's like, or oh, we could be in the 70s. And you can tell, like, even though it's obviously in the, the missing episode, so we only have the audio and, and screen clips, you sort of imagine all three heads kind of turning in her direction and kind of going, "Yeah, how the fuck did you figure that out? And she's like, because here's this band that says the Mexican Olympics and those haven't mm. happened yet so clearly we're at least in 1970s or whatever and that's brilliant I love how as well this is getting a little bit into Ben but it's one of these things where every time it comes up I, I sort of feel like I have to mention it because you had warned me about people's feelings around how Ben treats Polly yes um, and that there's some concerns out there that he A is unnecessarily uh, cruel to her and the fact that he calls her like duchess and whatever mm. um, but again I love how this person comes in and Ben's first thing is Polly you speak foreign I love the way he describes it <laughs> yeah. you speak foreign You it's like he doesn't even think of letting the doctor take the lead it's no Polly is a polyglot <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. She should be the one to initiate first contact with these people because she speaks multiple languages. A, I love that he knew that because this has never been mentioned before, I don't think, that she speaks yeah. English, French, German and Spanish at minimum. It's mm. possible there's more and she just didn't get to them. Um, yeah. But that his automatic reaction is just to hand over control to her. And this is the poly that we've seen. We've seen a poly where Ben and the doctor are perfectly willing to let her run the yeah. show. Take the lead on And stuff. take the lead. Where I think it... <sighs> the biggest issue for me with Polly, right, is... It's what I think forms the basis of this I can't, I can't attitude. For me, it centres down into one thing mm. that reduced her into the dams in distress territory, which is the inclusion of a forced operation that was going to happen to Polly. Right. Now, full context here, right? Because I'm going to get a little bit up on my high horse on this one. Right. Mm-hmm. I am currently rewatching The X-Files, which also has an ongoing thread of forced operations on women. So in this story, the boys are sent off to the mine and Polly is sent to have an operation done against her will to physically change her into somebody else. They're going to give her gills and change mm. her into what everyone refers to as a fish person. They don't they don't mm. even give this new group of people any sort of polite name. They're just the fish people. And yeah. um, that very much puts Polly into the damsel in distress territory. It's how the first episode ends, her screaming out for them not to touch her and to leave her alone. It's quite distressing. Mm. But the reason why I have an issue with it, beyond the fact that forced medical procedures on women in media is troubling, to say the least, particularly when it's like body mutilation and stuff like that, because it has Mm. connotations with real world activities that happen and in some cases continue to happen to women to this day. Mm. But let me ask you this. Yeah. If you took that bit out, Mm. so if Polly wasn't separated from the boys, if Polly wasn't being um, changed into a fish person, would that have changed the story at all? I honestly don't know. I don't think it would. That plot point leads directly to fuck off nowhere. Because everything that happens with Polly escaping and eventually reuniting with the guys could still happen if she had gone to the mine with them. Yeah, because they the, the boys end up in the the chamber behind the big head. Which is exactly where Polly was hidden. Yeah, it, it kind of introduces Ara and the Doctor a little bit, but you get the sense that Ara would have talked to him anyway. Yeah, because of uh, he helped her at the, the dinner table. Yeah. So yeah, that, it does feel like a useless plot thread other than to... Okay, the only thing that I suppose it does... And even then, like, this is like talking about you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark that Indiana Jones actually affect the thing of the story. Um, because if you think about it, right, the whole thing is ought to get across like the sinister connotations of the, you know, the Atlanteans. But Jesus Christ, that's already done with the the human sacrifice thing and we know through casual observance and like the other people that the fish people are treated like shite yeah. so we we don't need to know that an extra surgery would so yeah I think this might be a case of we've got four people in the TARDIS we need to allocate time for Jamie as a, as a first time companion 
so I suppose we put out an old faithful and put Polly into danger unnecessarily. Yeah. But I think the reason why when you have that be something that happens to her so mm. she gets kidnapped at the start she's the first person to get caught at the beginning okay you're starting into I can't I can't this territory is like Polly in peril mm-hmm. but by having her go through that experience it in some ways justifies her mental breakdown later because she's been through a harrowing experience but it's mm. like there was no need for you to have her go through that experience in the first place and it really bothers me that they did it because like I said I'm currently watching the X-Files and it has really brought to light how forced medical procedures on women this is me get up on a feminist high horse but you know what I mean well no because like okay I'll put you this way right um, you're on about forced medical procedures and look the last number of years throughout the world there has been very much connotations over choice in terms of life choice mm. and with especially kind of suppose with, with Scully because you bring up the X-Files the whole thing about William and there's the whole thing of like you know okay you can do medical procedures to guys and you know remove stuff or add stuff or whatever but forcing a life into someone that is prepared for it that that is a huge thing I suppose to be worried about so I wouldn't say it's a feminist high horse I think it's a very valid mm. point I mean the reason why it connects so thoroughly at the moment is and I don't know if you followed this, but like the stories that came out over the last number of years around the basically the mutilation of Mexican women at the US border. I I'm gonna say I haven't because the more I hear about that kind of stuff, the more pissed off I get. Yeah. Basically it's medical procedures that people didn't understand were being happened to them and involved mutilation, essentially. Yeah. So Seeing this happen where you're going to have a body mutilation of the female character while the men are strapping and strong, so they went off to the mine. It it undermines her character and it was completely unnecessary. Um, and it, I was happy when it was over. And it bothered me that I then later felt that when she had her mental breakdown, I kind of felt, well, this is justified because of what happened at the end of episode one. But, like, we've never... Like, Polly has never been shown as weak before. No. So, introducing that issue in episode one in order to justify her being weak later, it it just did not ring true, and it really bothered me. Um, Two other things I'm going to say about Polly before we switch the focus to someone else. One, I love her uh, treatment of Jamie in this, Mm. in the sense of... She's very kind of, she's not condescending towards him at all. She's very kind of taken by the hand. This is all very strange to you, but, you know, it's all very strange to me as well type thing, you mm. know. And the other thing as well is that, and I'm going to reflect on that when we talk uh, with one of our other people, is that at the very end, um, you know, she's convinced that Ben and the Doctor are gone. And when they emerge, she just goes in a very sort of a, oh my God, oh, thank God you survived she goes Ben and it's like there's something going on there's something <laughs> happening between the two of them uh, and I, I thought it was great because like we you know we talked about Ian and Barbara and the sort of like you know relationship that they had but it was great to kind of see that you know you could just say look it's a platonic thing but given the fact that they again like uh, Ian and Barbara they started together on the course of it they've grown together over the course of it I think that 
you know, just seeing that kind of stuff. And again, like when we talk about Ben, I'll mention another point of it is that I think there is something there and it's justifiable to assume that it's there, you know? Yeah, I think <laughs> I did have to laugh though when we got to that part of the episode because <laughs> all fairness to the BBC, the only clip they had of mm. Jamie and Polly sat outside the cave has Ben and the Doctor walking up behind them. <laughs> so you have Jamie saying, oh, Polly, I'm so sorry. I really don't think they got out. And obviously Polly's very upset. <laughs> you just see the two boys walking up behind her. And I'm like, <laughs> it's very much a Romeo and Juliet thing. I'm turning around, you dumb yeah. bitch. Like, they're right there. But obviously that's just the, that's just the pictures yeah. that the BBC had to work with. But I completely agree with you. And actually continuing on from that, the BBC does hold for up until the end of the TARDIS on there's a picture of Polly and Ben hugging mm. Mm. do you know which is yeah. very Ian and Barbara and I, I love the fact that they are more open with it with Ben and Polly that they're, they're yeah. not trying to hide out or dissuade it um, the last thing that I don't like about Polly in this and then I'll move on because I think I got a little bit depressed a while ago when we want to sort of bring this back up a bit is you know we mentioned the fact that she had the I can't I can't mentality which is in complete contradiction to last week Mm. where Polly didn't Polly didn't even accept that from somebody else but the other thing is we have said what is one of Polly's what, I say one of because Polly's a really good character what is one of Polly's best abilities well for me I think it's her adaptability like to think of stuff on the fly mm. one of the other ones we've discussed is her ability to read people oh yes yes yes, yes. it's, one, it's one, of the, one of the things that we first saw about Polly when we very first met her back in the War Machines Apparently, her ability to read people suddenly fails around Zaroff. Hmm. Where she completely buys into the fact that he's feeling ill and buys into that whole thing. Whereas the Polly that we know, I don't think would have been fooled. I don't think. Yes. I think even if Zaroff was saying like, oh, help me to stand before your goddess or whatever, I think Polly would have been like, no. A, he doesn't believe in it anyway, so don't pretend that he does. And B, we can't trust him. Leave him be. Stay over here. And yeah, it, it's it's very no. I think again, I think it was written to make a certain individual have his strong and strapping moment, which we will go into when we talk to him. Mm. But like after watching this, now again, like I've watched on. I've like obviously I'm a couple of stories ahead because of the, the way that we do things. But having watched this my initial fears were like, oh Christ, please don't turn her into like another Dodo or another later season Susan, you know, that type of thing. Mm. Because I had been enjoying her, like she, again, like after having not seen her for so long and then coming back and watching her, my, uh, my uh, assumptions, con- connotations, there's a word Assertions. to describe. That's the one, thank you. Uh, about her were completely, you know, tilted up you know like they're like flipped around it's like she's an incredibly in you know like she's very ingenious in the mm. sense of like you know, the stuff that she can pick up on the fly and she's very strong and it's great and as i said yes she does scream but it's a sort of like ah fuck okay now that that's sorted out what can we do to sort this type of thing yeah. you know uh so uh benjamin benjamin i love i love how jamie calls him benjamin <laughs> Yeah, Benjamin Sailor Man. Yeah. Um, Oh, I think Ben in this story for me has one 
amazing strong point that I love and for the rest of it I think he's consistently been yeah you know, he doesn't have any down points in the story for me he has one great thing that I want to highlight and there's one thing that I would have been curious to see in the actual footage of episode four so the thing that I really liked was he has a great dynamic with Jamie. Yes. There is no um, one-upmanship between them. Yeah. There is no... There's no Stephen about it. There's no protecting his place in the pecking order. There's none okay. of that. Get out of my notes. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> We've had this discussion before. Because yes, I have put it down here that had it been Stephen, it would have been a sort of like, you know establish eyes you know or not like lock eyes establish dominance type fucking thing and but like it's their straight away like their synchronicity is so good like you know when you know Jamie takes the thing from the take, he takes the compass from Jacko mm. and the two of them are just perfectly in sync about the light of the foreman and then when they do that really given the limitations quite unbelievable distraction <laughs> <laughs> It's like like there's not even a false mustache between them to fool the guy, you know. But again, they're perfectly in sync, which is great to see because the last thing you want is two like just fucking pricks, <laughs> yeah, just measuring measuring inside. Yeah, the there was in this no scenario. dick measuring contest, which I thought was brilliant. I hmm. really wasn't looking forward to it, and we saw that in the last story as well. They did get along quite well together. Um, but after the initial like, after the initial know, sort of confusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, so the red coats are bad guys, right? Oh shit, yeah, right, cool. Um, but I think it it really highlights an important thing about Ben's character in in massive contrast to Stephen, and in some ways, you know, I I love him and I will love him forever. But kind of in contrast to Ian, where Ian assumed the dominant role in many situations because it was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But as time went on, there was an assumption of dominance and a need to act. Mm. I'm thinking like the sense rights, for example. Yeah. Where he doesn't listen all the time when Barbara's in danger. Mm. He'll, just, he'll just go. With Ben, though, he he always knows when to defer to those who know more than him. Yes. And even when he'll go on the what about Polly, what about Polly, what about Polly, which I'm convinced at some point should just become like part of the bingo card um he never runs off by himself in order to take care of her or in order to make sure he will still follow the plan he'll raise his concern but he will defer when there are people who know more about the situation than him he doesn't need to be the alpha all the time no although he's i will say he has his priorities down straight what about polly (laughs) yeah oh no polly is his number one concern and we're both well aware of that (laughs) But he doesn't let that impact anything. Like, there, there's one point where it could have been very easily done, which mm. is when the doctor sends Jamie back to stay with Polly and guard over Zaroff, to his mind, and Ben is to go with him. And if Ben were any other character, even mm. possibly Ian, he would have been, no, I'll stay with Polly. Yeah. Jamie goes. But he didn't. Mm-hmm. He trusted the doctor's judgment and he followed through, which I think is great. It's a great way for Ben to be. It is. And look, if you think about it realistically, right, we're in the timeline. We're four, we'll say four years mm. out from where Ben left. Mm. So if the doctor says, Ben, do, you know, you know, press that button on that device, 
Ben would probably have a statistically better chance of actually doing it than Jamie kind of going, what's a device? <laughs> I swear to, I've got to stop doing trying to do a Scottish accent because I'm going to piss people off. But like, you know, like, what's a device? <laughs> like that, that type of thing, you know? Um, but, and as well, look, I, Ben, look, we've talked about the fact that Ben is a, na- he's a naval um, person. He's a, I was trying to think, of, he's, he's, a not, he's not a soldier. Yeah, he's a sailor. Um, but look, he's a, he's a sailor, and but he's also, he's in the armed forces, he's in the military, so he knows that you'd want to go in with like a very capable person. Mm. Jamie, at this point in time, look, is untested in terms of how he would handle an, a stressful situation like this. So again, look after Polly, look after the insane man that I'm pretty sure that you could take care of. <laughs> um but oh, speaking of that, Ben is actually in really very good at subterfuge. In he's like in the sense of like you know, oh, like you know, when he goes up with the doctor, it's like, oh, please, just leave us alone. Look, I, I, the pa- they never tell us the password. I said, look, this is the password, right? Fair enough, thank you very much. They go to the next guard. What's the password? Here it is. <laughs> it's just like he's just so he's getting so good at that type of stuff, and like, look, as you said, look, I'll f- I'm the same. Look, I'll forever love Ian. Ian is my number three in terms of companions. But like Ben is, you know, from the initial like the run of the sixties, Ben is Ben's got it. Ben is pretty good. Mm, and you know, I will say like in terms of companions overall that mm. I have seen, in terms of male companions, and I know everyone has a love for Jamie. I've only watched two of Jamie's stories. Right, give me a break. Mm. Currently, in terms of male companions, Ben is my number two behind Ian. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, although I would say maybe number three after Sir William to pray you, but that's the <laughs> thing no, that but the, yes. the other point I had about Ben that makes me, I mean, I always miss that we 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 don't have full episodes for everything, right? And I'm always going to miss that. But mm. the thing that really stands out for me is, given the conflict that we've seen in Ben in the past, again going back to Tenth Planet, right? I would have loved to have seen what his physical reaction was how his interactions with the doctor were when he forced when he was forcing the doctor to leave Zaroff behind and as well when the rock slide came down and kind of made the decision for them yeah I don't think I don't think Jamie would be like the smug sort of oh well that answers that type of thing it's a case of Ben yeah <laughs> you said Jamie we're talking sorry, about Ben uh, yeah yeah, yeah sorry no ben, I don't think Ben would have been smug about it no. I think Ben would have been come on look we have to like, we have to go. It's been taken out of our hands. Yeah, but that's one of those things where it's because I loved that conflict we saw on Tenth Planet, mm. and I really want to see how much that's in Ben. And obviously, since from Tenth Planet to now, all of the episodes have been missing, and we haven't got to see the actual actor. Do you know? But one thing I will say though is that the caliber of the acting by these people by Michael Craze and Alka Wills and Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton the, the calibre of their acting is great oh, yeah. because we can get invested into these missing stories through it and oh, yeah. again, thanks to the guys from Loose Cannon explain what's going on at a given time like you're invested because of their acting and even if we, like, even when we went back to Hartnell like Marco Polo which like uh, we both agreed was a great story mm-hmm. um, as like, and there's actually seven episodes missing back to back that's a stretch we were invested in it because of the quality of the acting of everyone, including Mark Eden and uh, Derek. Oh my God, I've forgotten his name. 
I've gone too too many names, but I don't expect me to remember that that yeah, isn't how this friendship works. Oh no, sorry, Darren. Uh, I'll look for his name during the while. But go on anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. Like Darren Nesmith. Darren Nesmith. Darren Nesmith. Yeah. Um, the the quality of the acting really carries through. Um, and it makes us just want to see. Like it, we we hear it in the voice, and I just want to see it in in reality. Um, did you have any other comments on Ben? No, I. Like again, it's just like he himself and Polly. They're himself and Polly are a perfect tag team in this, even though they're apart because of how they treat Jamie the exact same way. Mm. And Jamie has a great relationship with, you know, great working relationship with Ben. In the fact that they're an instant tag team, uh, I I refer to them as the Sailor and the Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also got a really good uh, thing with uh, Polly. Yeah, it's one of the things where you know we didn't really see Jamie interact with Polly last episode um no. they sort of like you know she she gently guides him into the TARDIS I think is yeah. <laughs> probably the culmination yes. of, of their interaction gently um <laughs> but she was also the one who invited him mm. do you know that was her idea yeah um and one of the things that I love is that and this is where how we experience the episodes now is in conflict with how the episodes were originally broadcast because yes. One of the things I've written down is that he is very patient and kind with Polly. Yeah. Again, not to beat a dead horse, but if he was Stephen in that situation, I think that would have been a very different interaction. I think Stephen would have been very quick to get angry with her. I I don't think Stephen would have hit her. I think that would have been a step too far. But I think there would have been yelling and come on, like pull yourself together in a very sort of aggressive way. And there was none of that with Jamie. He treats her, not with kid gloves, but he treats her like a gentleman. He treats her kindly, yeah. which I think is absolutely lovely. I, I honestly look. I don't think it is beating a dead horse because, like, you need like you need a measuring stick. You need mm. a measuring parameter. And we have, we had Ian, and yeah. we have at the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Ian and we have Stephen. Yeah. So the guys would fall into somewhere along that line, you know. So I think we've referenced him enough now that we should move on to speak to him. <laughs> so um, I'll start off with Jamie, will I? Yeah, go on. Cool. So I have it here that you can take the Highlander out of Scotland, but you can't take Scotland out of, Scotland out of the Highlander. Because like, it's like, you know, Jamie, or sorry, Polly goes through like, you know, French, German, Spanish, and all of a sudden, you're know, like, how would you try Gaelic? It's like, that's not the answer to fucking everything. <laughs> Because he also believes that like, when they've landed, they've landed on the Outer Hebrides. You know, like, uh, well, in fairness, his, his view of the world is probably smaller oh, than theirs. Yeah. And in fairness, why not try Gaelic? I know, yeah, I know, but it was just it was just funny. You know, <laughs> uh, you know Gaelic, um, like Scotch Gaelic and and Irish Gaelic are they're not they have a lot of similarities. So, like, yeah. part of me wouldn't be surprised if, like, at some point they're sort of on an alien planet and Jamie just turns around and is like. On Will Catagum Dulcidy and Laris. Hey, you try what languages you have to hand. Who knows what uh, would survive? No, you just hear this big carry accent going, Oh, shit, cotton. So, uh, I think Jamie gets off to a great start as a companion in this story. Because he, he reminds me of a bit like Vicky in that he very much takes it all in his stride. Like mm. at the same time, still kind of, kind of going. Ah, oh, you can't be serious. I think, but it's no. He takes it very much in his stride. Um, I also like think it's great that like, we have a non-contemporary mm. companion acting in such a very 
positive way and they're not used as a sort of like my fair lady type thing like those moments will probably come mm. but it's not so like beat you on the head with it I think like, had Katarina stayed on longer we would have had a lot more of these moments yeah and like this is the thing where you know I made the point that they didn't do much with Katarina at the time mm. and they very much they basically said she was too stupid to follow along um mm. obviously there's a big time difference between Katarina and Jamie in terms of huge huge time difference in, in the history of Earth um but I think they've written Jamie incredibly well because if you think about up to now we've had excluding Susan because she doesn't count mm. we've had Ian and Barbara contemporary contemporary who had a very startling introduction to mm. time and space travel who adapted relatively quickly but their introduction was completely fucking off See, the wall they, they had an arc they had the unearthly child the Daleks and the edge of destruction to bring everything together yeah but in terms of their initial introduction oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. where are we and whatever their situation was very different from everyone we have Vicky who as you said took it all in her stride but she was from mm. the future Yes. We have Stephen, who was from the future, but took forever in um, the time meddler to accept what he was being told. Space hazard for a cow. <laughs> Still the best line ever. Um, yeah. yeah, so like, Stephen was very much, he wasn't even being a scully, he was just being obnoxious hmm. we have Katarina who almost didn't count she thought that she was on her way Dead. to um, the fields of Elysium we have Sarah Kingdom who didn't really get much time but did adapt fairly quickly in, in Fire Store. Um hmm. Dodo who adapted quickly enough and Ben and Polly where Ben was total scully for like yeah. a while I think on I think we kind of with all those characters we sort of have like a full spectrum of yeah denial and acceptance and I think Jamie is he's really up there with you know Vicky and um Sarah Kingdom hmm. who are characters from the future yeah so I think it says a lot about Jamie that the character from the past that his reactions are very much on par with the characters from the future and his acceptance of we've travelled in time and space and this thing's huge on the inside cool and as well like there is like that uh, element of like the superstitious nature to him because like you know the last time they talked about you know you need to use bloodletting on the laird and the doctor said oh the, he used astrology to kind of bullshit him you know mm. so there is a still a slight element of I won't say heathen but like uncivilised person about him but not enough that it would be like a complete um, chalk and cheese type thing with uh, Katarina, you know? Yeah, but I think like the whole idea that like even though he doesn't have an understanding of science at all, mm. he yeah. doesn't understand what these people are saying half the time. <laughs> so he says to him, he says to himself, I could never describe how this thing works. Yeah. But I accept that it does. And I think that's Jamie where he doesn't need to understand if you show him you know, this is how a plane works. He won't be like, oh, it's magic. It's, okay, cool. I don't understand how it's working, but I can see that it's working. 
Okay. There is a story coming up in a while that Jamie does encounter his very first airplane. And yeah, you, you, we're going to come back to that statement. <laughs> okay, we'll put, it, we'll put a pen in that one. Yeah. But um, um, I like Jamie's guile in this. Like Again, very much like Ben. Like, like Jamie comes in and he sees people working in a mine. And he sees two people doing something that will clearly get them in trouble. And what's his initial thing to do? I'm going to help them out. And he does it in such a very crafty way that himself and Ben, they work so well together. It's actually great. As I said, I can't speak enough about it. How well that pairing acted upon their first adventure together outside of, you know, the initial meetup, whatever the case is. Yeah, it was brilliant. I do have one question about Jamie. Yes. Knowing going forward, right? Insight into next week. What does he wear in next week's episode? Um, the kilt is an ever-present thing. No, it's not. How is the kilt an ever-present thing when his kilt was left behind in Atlantis? The doctor has a big wardrobe. <laughs> um, because, they, okay, when he has to wear spacesuits, he would, no, when he has to wear spacesuits, obviously he'll wear the spacesuit. Presumably he rucks up the kilt to fit around the, the midriff. Um, but yeah, no, the kilt is an ever-present thing for Jamie. Yeah. No, and my point was that Clearly, he's not wearing his kilt when the episode ended, so he left his kilt behind. <laughs> Look, for fuck's sake, we in what was it two stories ago? We asked, did the doctor's pants regenerate as well? <laughs> so let's not bring costume continuity in this, shall we? Um, also, what did you get? What did you think of your first taste of the McCrimmon effect? I think it was very well done. Yes, I think it. For its first rollout, it's not quite as devastating as the wharf effect. Yes. Bear in mind, I think we first see the wharf effect when he goes up against Q. Yeah. Who just flings him aside with a wave of his hand. Here, just so f- yeah, we're talking. Just, keep, yeah, yeah. just for people, who are, the the wharf effect, which I um, I'm fully um, I'm fully stating that it's actually the McCrimmon effect is when you test the. I suppose the strength and the difficulty of a villain by pitting Jamie against them in some sort of contest. Yeah, it, it, it's how you define the strength of your enemy by pitting yeah. your strongest hero against them and having them be beaten. In Star Trek Next Generation, it happened so often with Worf mm. that people started calling it the Worf effect. And here we can see that actually... This isn't unique to Worf or Star Trek. No. <laughs> it happened earlier with Jamie. And I think the, the difference between the beginning of the Worf effect for TNG and the beginning of the McCrimmon effect here is Jamie was holding his own for a while. He's very yeah. agile. I loved him jumping swords and everything. That was fucking brilliant. <laughs> um, again, going back to the fact that like he was the piper mm. for the clan. Do you know? And while he did have a knife, he didn't have like a mm. great big sword or anything. Um, no. When we saw him last week, so from that, like you wouldn't know where his skill level is. Well, I will say though, you had to be pretty fucking ballsy to what to march into the middle of a fucking fight just playing the bagpipes. Well, true, but as in, in terms yeah, of his yeah. fighting skill, you don't get oh, much well, of an idea. Oh, yeah, from you, the don't, you, you don't get a thing of it. Um, but I think it's great. I think the difference though, except between the war effect and this is that, like here, you have what I would deem to be a physically stronger, younger man. Yes. Going up against a madman. Mm-hmm. It's the strength of insanity, like. It's the strength of insanity. The reason why he loses is the strength of insanity. It's not because he is less capable. Yeah. 
and like it's the thing of like you know an animal is never more fierce than when it's cornered and here it is like Zaroff is a wild animal mm. he's like he's got a sword he's Jamie can't get a read on his erratic movements so he can't do anything mm. and Jamie has no weapon exactly like and as well Jamie wouldn't Jamie is such like um, a no, like he's a noble spirit that he wouldn't dream about asking Polly for help because it also puts Polly in danger yeah although Polly does help herself you know Oh, in no, a very Barbara-esque way, she she flings the thing at your man's head. She, she does, but he doesn't call upon her to do it, which is like the, the type of thing. Yeah. Um, I think, no, this puts a really good taste in the mouth for Jamie, I think. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, I'd agree. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing how he gets on in whatever weird cosmic upheaval has just occurred. <laughs> He says, not as if he hasn't already fucking seen what's happened. I haven't, so it's okay. Yeah. Um, so... If we move on, then we have four story-based companions. I think each of which maybe one or two lines um, on each of them. Yeah. So we have Jacko, Sean, Ara, and Ramo. So if we start with mm. uh, who I would think would be the least uh, made the least contribution, which would be Jacko. Yeah, I just got to go. There always has to be like your token grumpy asshole. Yeah, and we we've said this a lot. We have like the requisite pessimist that in yeah. every story we've sort of had this character, um, like stories of this type. We've had this yeah. character. What I do like about him, though, is that he he doesn't dawdle. Do you know? No. He still gets on with what he does. He doesn't hold, you know let it hold him back. But he is the sort of pessimist of the group. Yeah. And like he, like, and it's not like his pessimism doesn't. Like he's not one of those pessimists that's like you know oh but this isn't going to work so I'm not going to fucking do anything. Yeah. As you said, like he doesn't dawdle. He gets stuck in. It's like look if it's not going to work we might as well at least have a fucking bash of it to make sure that it doesn't work. Yeah. You know? He's he's just you know he's a glass is half empty type of person. But there's still something in the glass. Yeah. And on the flip side, his glass half full compadre. Uh, is Sean. Is, is Sean. I love Sean. Uh, I thought he was brilliant. Uh, or in this case, because he's Irish, a Corja. <laughs> uh, or Makara. Uh, depending on what part of the country you're coming from. Yeah. Um, he's definitely the more fleshed out of the two. Mm. And... I, basically how he incites the fish people to revolt is fucking hilarious he throws stones at them and he gets them really pissed off he's like right now that you're pissed off if you think I'm bad how about the people that are making you fucking work <laughs> and it's like yeah I'm an asshole but there's a huge other asshole out there yeah that that's Sean is a guy who you know some would call it the natural Irish gift of the gap bearing in mind at this point Paddy and I have been talking about this story for I will be editing some of this out, but there, we are getting down well, to an hour and a half. half. <laughs> there is the Irish gift of the gab, which is just the way it is. Uh, which is actually referenced in this story because he, go, he, says to the, he says to the doctor, oh, it's going to take some fair amount of convincing to get the fish people on board. And the doctor just goes, well, you are Irish. <laughs> and I, I was like, should I feel insulted or should I feel honoured? I, 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 I feel honoured. I feel honoured. Yeah, I, I feel honoured. Because like, he says it in such a, a, like, a very cheeky way. I, like Shaw just kind of goes... Touche. <laughs> Fair enough. It's like when, you know, Dan and Paul, when we asked about the yeah. time traveling team doing a drinking game, and yeah. Paul basically said that I swear like a sailor. I was like, yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even if it wasn't his natural Irishness, clearly that guy has been making out with the Blarney Stone like there was no tomorrow. Actually, that, though, the Irish, the one thing about the Irish thing, though, is that I, one thing I did like is that there are times in various media, be it, primarily American or sometimes British media, Irish actors are told to really ham up their Irish accent. Oh, yeah. 
I didn't get that from Sean in this one though. No, and that's what I like. I get the feeling that that was that actor's natural accent, yeah. or that person knows someone from Ireland and knows that it's a like they could have gone very fucking lucky charms fucking Dar- Dar- Darby O'Gill yeah different type and thing. they didn't and that's great um but again Sean is a great character he's funny he's welcoming mm. clearly not broken by what has happened to him and very much the glass is half full side of that duo yeah. I think as a duo they work very well together I think mm, oh, they both ab- need absolutely. the other one because Sean needs Jacko to keep him a realist grounded yeah, and keep him grounded. grounded and Jacko needs Sean to say but let's just take the leap anyway yeah uh, then we have our Atlantean uh, companions and there's Ara and Ramo yeah so Ara is an interesting thing so she's a nice girl and without her none of the story would have really progressed <laughs> yeah um, she really is the sort of pivot point for the story but she just sort of pops up and disappears and pops up and disappears and pops up and disappears and I'm like okay and I there's but she no she is like she's a very linchpin to the kind of how the story plays out but there's one thing though that be it the I think yeah it's probably down to the writing is that there's this constant message throughout that if Ara gets caught something bad is going to happen to her but we never get a taste of what that might be because she never has a proper brush with getting caught yeah and that's where this story being a four-parter and having so many side characters mm. that's where that failed you know, she's yeah. she's a great character and we get the sense like she obviously has really good relationships with the people in the market that they had no problem hiding polly because ara asked them to yeah Do you know like she's clearly well liked or whatever but we don't we don't know what the ramifications for her would actually be mm. and from whom like is the ramification from zaraf is it from faust like who who is it from is it from damon who yeah um and and we don't ever we don't ever find out about that so i think she's a nice girl i think she's underdeveloped but in a four episode story with that many characters Hmm. i don't know if i don't know if i could have sacrificed anything else to give her more development oh no (laughs) i know we could have sacrificed polly (laughs) getting like (laughs) yeah we could have sacrificed that uh and then we have ramo or as i've dubbed him uh, Outlock 2.0. Yeah, I literally have Outlock Take 2. Um, but a bit more inner strength, I think, than Outlock. Yeah, like, he, like he's, he is a staunch believer in the Atlantean pantheon of gods. Mm. And his relationship with the Doctor isn't so much one of, you know, doubt about society, but it's more of a the enemy of my enemy sort of vibe. Yeah, but I, I don't think... The, like, he doesn't... The thing I find with Ramo is that he... When presented with evidence, so the doctor doing an experiment to show him what would happen, mm. he's like, oh yeah, but you know, um, Zaroff told us that that's what he was going to do and it would raise us up, but the doctor actually showing him. Yeah. But this is what would happen. Ramo immediately, and one of the things I like about his character is immediately went, I believe you, I support you, and my people need us to fix this. And yeah. very much inner strength and like the fact that like even when he finds out that it like i mean when he hears the voice of his goddess yeah who is ben when he <laughs> no it's it's it's, it's polly does the screaming Polly's... ben does the talking no that's polly's voice is, that, is it polly doing the talk? i that, thought it was ben because it's because it's no, a deeper no. register no because like well as if you can't put on a deeper tone of voice true very true yeah 
Um, okay, cool. Yeah, that's that, that, that was my... I, I read that wrong. Um, yeah. But, like, when he hears the voice of his goddess coming through, he clearly, like, it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to him. And when he finds out that, that wasn't true, it would have been very easy for him to become a broken man. And mm-hmm. he doesn't. He's clearly upset. Yeah. But it doesn't stop him from pushing forward, which I think is great. No. And, like, on... Unfortunately, he doesn't meet the same fate as Outlock in the sense that he like, he dies, um, yeah. which, which is a shame because there are, as we've talked about before, there are certain side characters that you kind of want to see a small bit more of. Mm. I, I I would agree. Ramo is one of those characters, and even like we don't have him down here, but like even the elder priest, uh, Lolum, Lolum, like I imagine had the doctor met Lolum first. And been able, if I think Lolum could have given the Doctor the same opportunity that Ramo did. I think, I, I read it somewhere that in the novelization of this, he stops Zara from escaping and the two of them sort of wrestle each other as the, the chamber floods. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, oh, I think that's, yeah, that's what the novelization ended up as. Yeah, but I think it's a great sign that, like, I'll get into overall in terms of, like, the representation of the Atlanteans, that they are willing to listen to reason they're not Clitoxel who just does not listen to fucking anything and they're not Autlock yeah. who once their reality is challenged shattered yeah loses the will to continue which is yeah. great so on to our villains of the film yes um, we have three we have Thaus Damon and Zaroth yeah so I think Thaus would be our sort of villain by circumstance circumstance yeah uh, so for me, he is the Mayor Quimby of Doctor Who. Like, I, I don't care how you fulfill my dreams, just do it. Wait, that's how you're going to do it? I am shocked, but possibly should have been more invested. I I wouldn't go that far with him. Okay. Um, first of all, my first note was that he's the master of the bushy eyebrows, right? His eyebrows are massive. But the thing is, for me, he's a, he's a villain by circumstance because it's like, why not trust Zaroff? Do you know? Zaroff mm. had brought... Um, technologies he had clearly been very helpful and up until the point that we see him clearly the two of them get along really well so why not trust him you know like Zaroff hasn't given Faust any reason not to trust him and it's only when and this is what I like again it's what I like about the Atlanteans is that they don't just flip on a dime they take things in while he didn't agree with the Doctor and Ramo, hmm. and he did hand them over to Zarev, he did listen, and he did pay attention. Hmm. And when it was proven to him by his own experiences that the Doctor was right, then he, you know, he turned on Zarev. Like, bearing in mind that, like, the Doctor was meant to be sacrificed and then wasn't because he said he had a message for his... Like, there's all this sort of background stuff that makes the doctor the least trustworthy of the two of them yeah because like it's there's a weird a weird thing here now in the sense of right that clearly atlantean society is deeply steeped in their religion Mm. and their belief in the gods but tau seems to be in that middle ground where it's like he appears to be devout but at the same time he's kind of interested in scientific advancement but if one of your priests comes along and tells you that the scientific advancement is going to be hurting your society, 
you would you would think now again this is just from my perspective that a leader would call like you know the two sides together science and religion and try and you know I think, see how it's going I think what we're missing from that though and Damon says it later that it was yeah. the high priest Lolum mm. who had encouraged him to trust Zara from the first place that they had yeah. said oh you were sent by the goddess and whatever so it was reading into the religious signs that made him trust Zaraf, mm. along with obviously the things that Zaraf had done so when an under priest comes and says this is wrong with the guy that the head priest had tried to sacrifice i i, I can understand is what i'm saying yeah um i suppose i suppose i think but like <laughs> I think what happens with cases like this is I apply too much real world logic to stuff, and it's like, like for, and it's not even like real world politicians. It's like just even our, you know, even in our fucking jobs. Like yeah. I've worked with some bosses where it's like, oh, like we'll do this. It's like, no, no, no. The evidence points that we shouldn't do this. And it's like, ah, no, I think we'll still do this. Fair enough. I will sit in the corner and wait for it to blow up, and then you can come back to me. True. However, they didn't take him through the worked example of what Zaraf's plan was going to accomplish. And I wonder if they had actually shown him the same thing. the same way. I wonder. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have a flame in a pot of water. <laughs> <laughs> Here's one we prepared earlier, but we used it. Yeah. Um, so moving on to Damon, um, I have two points on. Uh, I suppose three points on Damon. First, it's Damon the dickhead. Yeah. He was able to see the errors of working with Zaraf, and clearly he didn't trust Zaraf anyway. Um, no. But even after. It is fundamentally science that destroyed a large portion of their cities. Mm. He says they should do away with the temple. Yeah. That's like, hold on. That's like saying that, you know, someone invented the nuclear bomb. So we should do away with Christianity. Like that makes, yeah, you know. You could say, like, you know, we will not blindly trust it anymore. There we that's go. Like some, that's like kind of something. The, the, the atom bomb was tested at Trinity. What else is a Trinity? Christianity. Let's get rid of Christianity, but keep the bomb. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's such a weird thing. And also, he yeah. freaks out over his operating room. And then he tries to play at the end that he's like, oh, that he's the higher purpose. He's better. It's like, no, you were operating on people and changing them into fish people. Yeah. And the only reason you're upset is because your lab got flooded. That wouldn't have happened if you were a fish person. <laughs> Dick. And your third point before I... No, that was my... I, I ran into my third point. My third point was the only reason why he gets all sanctimonious at the end is actually because his lab got destroyed and his lab hadn't been destroyed. He probably wouldn't have been as... I'm with the people. So, <clears throat> I when I watched that sequence... I actually got really, really pissed off. I was like, do you want? Fuck you. Honestly, just fuck you. Unless your plan to rebuild this more utopian society deals with you reversing the process of what you have done to the fish people, or at least offering them sort of sanctuary and place within your society. No, fuck right off. I'm sorry, I don't, like, I've talked about, you know, character, like, villainous characters or character or villains by association, or, or sorry, circumstance, having these redemption moments this does not fucking fly in it. I'm sorry, but this guy is an absolute fucking monster. You've mingled people for your own benefit and you've not once thought of trying to like reverse that process, you know, in light of your fucking errors. So as, as far as I was concerned, that guy could have fucking drowned in the, in the temple. 
Yeah. Um, like I said, at least he saw the errors of his ways with Zaref, but he never trusted him anyway. So I don't, I don't know if that really that's, counts. That, 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 that's because like, he's the chief Atlantean scientist and you have a fucking outsider coming back saying coming, that I can do the one thing that your people have never been able to do. Yeah. So that that's where his mistrust of Zaref comes from. It's like insecurity and jealousy as opposed to this guy is kind of shady. Yeah. <laughs> Look at his eyebrows. <laughs> so going on to Zaref, um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we, we raised the, the point in the trivia section that originally they were going to have a reason why he was bat crap crazy yeah um they took the reason away and all we're left with is he is bat crap crazy yeah because like this is these are essentially my notes wild hair check manic stare check pencil mustache check crazy accent check point is that was actually just that actor's accent i would just like to point that out there's a myth oh, that know, he was putting that on. That's actually just the way he speaks. <laughs> okay. Because, right, fair enough. I, I'll, I'll remove that point. However, we're still left with Doctor Who versus Doctor What the fuck is this guy's problem? Oh, yeah. Like, th- this man is literally the definition of background crazy. Like, we didn't, like... He's a Bond villain that tries to overachieve at everything. It's yeah. like, there's, like, there's, there's no, like, kind of, you know, pair it back. Like, he, he is the type of person who, like... <laughs> I'll put this way. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 it's like why do you care so much about the universe because I fucking live in it <laughs> yeah. it's like you're planning on destroying the world where are you going to live you tit <laughs> yeah I think he I think I think he's an incredibly underdeveloped villain um, and I think again there were too many I think take out the fish people entirely because he is the underwater menace I think yeah. take out the fi- even take out the fish people's subplot in its entirety entirely get rid of Damon and develop Zaraf more yeah because like, you can even have like oh we'll just get the people to rise up against the outsider who is going to destroy our fucking society yeah that's it uh, I have something to say about the fish people in our overall but um, like if they had gone ahead with that backstory, I would have bought into him a lot more. Mm. Because it remind what it reminds me of, um, and we talked about it uh, on the last podcast we did with uh, Dan and Paul, um, mm. Stryker from the X-Men. Mm. Because, uh, very kind of like in the movie, but in the comics as well, Stryker's wife dies giving birth to his son, who is a mutant. And he views the mutant's power as what killed his beloved person. So therefore, it's like eradicate all mutants. So here we have a case of the world took my world away. So I'm going to take the world away from everyone else. That is a character that I can get behind as an interesting villain. Versus I want to blow it up just because I can, Mr. Bond. No, that's, I'm sorry. Like, unless you've got a fucking space shuttle taking you off. No, cool. I'm I'm done. Goodbye. Good luck. So this brings us to our overall conclusions on the underwater menace. Mm. Now, mine are conflicting. I'll put it that way. Uh, so why don't you go first? <laughs> cool. I'm also conflicting. <laughs> no. So I think that this is the first time, with possibly the exception of Planet of the Giants, or Planet of Giants, sorry, mm. there's no the in it, <laughs> that Doctor Who has felt actually like a B movie. It's felt like the modern perception of what the show was. Mm like tacky sets very silly sequences and dialogues and whatnot like we talked about the fish people and we've heard us mention the fish people more in the 
character discussion than in the fucking summary recap. There is about, I timed it, there is a two minute section where the fish people stop working and put on some sort of aquatic ballet. And it's just weird. And it's like, it's two minutes. It's it's like, like, this is, this is at least 90 seconds of dialogue that could have gone to someone else. This could have been like, you know, 90 seconds of Holly, just like, or sorry, Polly, running down the hallway with both hands extended, bitch slapping Atlantean scientists. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, I'm on board for that. Um, as opposed to two minutes of Swan Lake under the lake. So that I have issues with it in that, the portrayal of Polly. I'm I'm not liking it. I, I don't I do not like it in this one because as much as I like her strong moments, her weak moments really fucking piss me off because they're so against the character. Mm. Like if it's if if that sort of mentality or if that sort of characteristic is inherently in the character, like we've seen up until now, fair enough. If it comes fucking smack out of the blue, no, you're not going to get buy in from me. In terms of Jamie's input, like. And I have to take a look at it from the introduction of Jamie because I think Jamie is portrayed very well in the story. Mm. Possibly at the expense of other people. Mm. But this is where the conflict comes from. The strong moments are there. The strong moments are good and we've spent time talking about the strong moments. But the bad moments in terms of and as well like with the choices to eliminate Zara's backstory have like this sort of weird soliloquy over like oh we should try to strive to do better but we're not actually going to be better fucking people. So... I, I've decided, look, I'm going to split this straight down the middle and it's going to be a 2.5. Yeah, I, I can see that. And I agree with pretty much everything you said. For me, like, talking about the good things, right? Because, I'll be honest. Well, before you get into, yep. Sorry, before you get into your good things, I'm just wondering with Ben and Polly, are we going to see, like, Sir Benjamin of Jaffa? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it would be Dame Polly instead. <laughs> I am Dame Polly and this is my psychic, Benji. Stop calling me Benji. <laughs> but, uh, okay, sorry. so the good things... Because I'm in such a conflict about this story. Um, and while we've been talking, I've changed my score a number of times. Uh, which is, does seem to happen in stories like this. like Because like I remember, was it the massacre? Our story, our scores changed. The web yeah. planet, our scores changed. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the... Okay, so going to the things I like, right? From the very start... Right, I, I wrote down the the vibe I got from the beginning is this is like this is literally the magic school bus, Do you know. It's like everyone together. We're on a field trip. You know, the doctor's like, wait, wait, wait for me. <laughs> Do you know, it's yeah. very fun. It's very <laughs> engaging. The interactivity between our TARDIS crew, I think, is phenomenal. Do you know, it's everything I would have wanted in a crew that I think we've been missing since Ian and Barbara left um, mm. it's fantastic I love like everyone has a good relationship with everybody else and I think that's fantastic I think Polly's strong moments the bits that we got from Polly that are true to her character were great you know Polly the polyglot <laughs> you know I love it however there are a number of things that bothered me first off I need to be honest right I defended the web planet a great deal, right? I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, Hair on. Aside from that. <laughs> aside from that. <laughs> that was never explained. <laughs> um, but, you know, everyone sort of rags on the web planet because the effects are a bit crap and 
the costumes aren't great. I would take I the web. The costumes, though. I, I the costumes. I would take the web planet over this any fucking day of the week, in yes. terms of character, and most definitely in terms of costumes. The Optera and the Monoptera from the web planet, I think, were. While they're not the best costumes in the world, they are way better than the poor, four fucking the poor fucking fish people in the story. I no, I will die on a hill defending the costumes of the Monoptera and the Optera. I really enjoyed those yeah. costumes. I think you know, personally, I think they were still a bit cheap looking, hmm. but they worked well in the story. And in comparison to this, I think I completely understand why last week's director didn't bother staying on because this story for what they they wanted to recreate Atlantis yeah on a Doctor Who budget I like I want I, I kind of wish they didn't because or at least I kind of want the Doctor the modern Doctor to do it can you imagine a modern Who take on Atlantis that'd be brilliant um, and now it's kind of been lost because of this well there there is like no there is a classic story that deals with Atlantis prior to the fall mm. so submerged Atlantis for me is the more interesting Atlantis yeah me too um, so it's, yeah, yeah it's a shame it is the other things I didn't like and the things that took points away right Zarov's character was way too over the top with no reason why he's mm. just back crap crazy and like you said it's hard for us to get behind someone who's just back crap crazy yeah Polly's characterization was all over the place it really, really was, and it was a massive disservice to Annika Wills and the character that she'd been that she had created. Mm. And I don't know how much of that was script. I don't know how much of that was the director, who everyone said they didn't like. I don't know, but the bit that gets me, and you know, I'll be honest, you know, me and Patty talked about this between segments. The bit that genuinely really upset me was the fact that there is no comeuppance for someone who is forcing body mutilation on people. Yeah. And that, for me, is not okay. It was a useless plot point. You could have taken out the fish people entirely because the underwater menace wasn't the fish people. No matter what you see on the box, the underwater menace is Zaroff. Like, that's the thing. Like, like an underwater, like the underwater menace, okay, if you, if you want to go into the subsections of, like, you could say have had pure blood Atlanteans who retained their humanity versus like the of oh, the abnormalities or the mutations or something like that. Mm. I'll buy into that story because it's two classes of a of a city that's have now been lost in some sort of warfare. That's fine. But when you introduce them as essentially slave servitors that have been experimented on and that's it, you only get to see this two minute weird fucking ballet and an Irish lad chucking stones at them. It's no, that's that's weak. Like not only are they mutilated, they're slaves, and they've lost the ability to communicate. They can't yeah, talk. Their, their communication is like some sort of weird, uh, again, almost like Zarby, like beeping and stuff like that. Yeah, they can't talk, and like it upsets me just thinking about it. Yeah. So originally, I gave this a two point seven five. Then I started thinking about Zaraf and I dropped it down to a 2.5. Then I really started thinking about the fact that Damon gets zero comeuppance whatsoever. And now I've dropped it to a 2. I'm sorry that that including yeah. that story plot point 
has ruined what was like other than that if you took out that this story would be fine it'd be mm. fine eh, effects are a bit shit whatever it's grand I think no sorry I cut across you there no it's like, the effects are a bit shit but we get over yeah. that do you know what I mean that, that, that's not yeah. an issue the costumes yeah they're bad but they're not a big issue do you know mm. I would have gotten over it it's the inclusion of that plot point and there is no comeuppance whatsoever no fuck off I think this is very much a story that I would like to see uh, the current or the next incarnation of the Doctor right now when I say current the next I'll tell you about right, right now 2021 mm. go back and revisit what is the new Atlantean society like and like obviously look we'll have better effects we'll have better budget you can say what you know, you can, if that's your job fair enough but I would like to see a story reflecting did Damon and Thaus come true on their promise and the, sh- the stuff that we're giving out about now was that dialogue that was used up during the aquatic ballet you know yeah. I don't think it I don't think it is and I think there's a there's a story there for either expanded big Finnish media or book or even just coming up now that like this is a story that has left a kind of a weird like a sour taste because I feel like there are parts of it I really want to rewatch. But I don't really want to watch the whole story again, you know? No. This is something where a skim watch is is, is all that you can do. Literally jump to the scenes you like. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate because this has been such a strong season overall. And mm. I'll be honest, critics at the time agreed with us. They thought that this was the worst story. I don't think they agreed yeah. with us for the reason that we've done it. I think it was more so around the fish people and stuff like that. But um, unfortunately for me, it's a two. But I think it's also interesting to think, right, is that you have stories that unintentionally have these topics in them that, you know, we're talking about now because stuff that's happening at this point in time is reflected in them. And, like, you know, we, we talked when we talked about the massacre, we talked about uh, a story dealing with Catholic and Protestant troubles was mm-hmm. aired during a time where that was still happening in the world. And no, it's not happening at the moment, thank God. Um, but like, there's a lot. Like, there's a lot of stuff that look. We talked about. Uh, pollu- we jokingly mentioned pollution in Dalek's Master Plan. That's a thing that's you know we're seeing protests and everything for. So that's one thing I love about this podcast is that going back and looking at the stuff, we're seeing a lot of story writing that's well ahead of its time. But I don't know if that's the intention of the story writing. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I think. <sighs> I don't know. I think it's it's just a sign of. That we still have a long way to go. Yes. But that that's that's evident even fucking now. We still have a long that, that's what I mean. way to go. The yeah, fact that yeah. I'm still angry yeah. about this shit now. Yeah. Yeah. Means there's still a long way to go. But look, next week we're on to something completely different. So do you want to tell the lovely people uh, out there what is happening next week? Yeah, so next week we'll figure out what the hell is happening with the TARDIS and see if the doctor maintains his indignance. I suppose, shall we say, when our TARDIS team visits the moon base. Ooh. Not quite Mars, but okay. <laughs> I wonder if there's I wonder if there's a man there selling cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so until next week, guys. Bye. Bye.
Thank <laughs> you.